Charles Darwin's Religious Life, A Sketch in Spiritual Biography, Part 2, by B.B. Warfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sir Charles Lyell was not left alone in his efforts to clarify Mr. Darwin's thinking on such subjects. Soon Dr. Asa Gray took his place by his side and became at once the chief force in the endeavour. Nevertheless, Mr. Darwin outlines already in a letter to Lyell in 1860 the arguments by which he stood unto the end. I must say one word more, he writes, about our quasi-theological controversy about natural selection. Do you consider that the successive variations in the size of the crop of the powder pigeon, which man has accumulated to please his caprice, have been due to the creative and sustaining powers of Brahma, in the sense that an omnipotent and omniscient deity must order and know everything? This must be admitted, yet in honest truth I cannot admit it. It seems preposterous that a maker of a universe should care about the crop of a pigeon solely to please man's silly fancies. But if you agree with me in thinking such an interposition of the deity uncalled for, I can see no reason for believing in such interpositions in the case of natural beings, in which strange and admirable peculiarities have been naturally selected for the creature's own benefit. Imagine a powder in a state of nature, wading into the water, and then being buoyed up by its inflated crop, sailed about in search of food. What admiration this would have excited! Adaptation to the laws of hydrostatic pressure, etc. For the life of me I cannot see any difficulty in natural selection producing the most exquisite structure, if such structure can be arrived at by gradation, and I know from experience how hard it is to name any structure toward which at least some gradations are not known. P.S. The conclusion at which I have come, as I have told Asa Gray, is that such a question as is touched on in this note is beyond the human intellect, like predestination and free will, or the origin of evil. There is much confused thought in this letter, but it concerns us now only to note that Mr. Darwin's difficulty arises on the one side from his inability to conceive of God as imminent in the universe, and his consequent total misapprehension of the nature of divine providence, and on the other from a very crude notion of final cause which posits a singular extrinsic end as the sole purpose of the Creator. No one would hold to a doctrine of divine interpositions such as appears to him here as the only alternative to divine absence. And no one would hold to a teleology of the raw sort which he here has in mind, a teleology which finds the end for which a thing exists in the misuse or abuse of it by an outside selecting agent. Mr. Darwin himself felt a natural mental inability for dealing with such themes, and accordingly wavered long as to the attitude he ought to assume toward the evidences of God's hand in nature. Thus he wrote in May 1860 to Dr. Gray, with respect to the theological view of the question, this is always painful to me, I am bewildered. I had no intention to write atheistically, but I own that I cannot see as plainly as others do and, as I should wish to do, evidence of design and beneficence on all sides of us. There seems to me too much misery in the world. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the ichneumonidae with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars, or that a cat should play with mice. 
Not believing this, I see no necessity in the belief that the eye was expressly designed. On the other hand, I cannot anyhow be contented to view this wonderful universe, and especially the nature of man, and to conclude that everything is the result of brute force. I am inclined to look at everything as resulting from designed laws, with the details, whether good or bad, left to the working out of what we may call chance. Not that this notion at all satisfies me. I feel most deeply that the whole subject is too profound for the human intellect. A dog might as well speculate on the mind of Newton. Let each man hope and believe what he can. Certainly I agree with you that my views are not at all necessarily atheistical. The lightning kills a man, whether a good one or a bad one, owing to the excessively complex action of natural laws. A child, who may turn out to be an idiot, is born by the action of even more complex laws, and I can see no reason why a man or other animal may not have been aboriginally produced by other laws, and that all these laws may have been expressly designed by an omniscient creator who foresaw every event and consequence. But the more I think, the more bewildered I become, as indeed I have probably shown by this letter, the reasoning of this extract, which supposes that the fact that a result is secured by appropriate conditions furnishes ground for regarding it as undesigned, is less suitable to a grave thinker than to a redoubtable champion like Mr. Allen Quatermain, who actually makes use of it. At last he was dragged forth uninjured, though in a very pious and prayerful frame of mind, he is made to say of a negro whom he had saved by killing an attacking buffalo. His spirit had certainly looked that way, he said, or he would now have been dead. As I never liked to interfere with true piety, I did not venture to suggest that his spirit had deigned to make use of my eight-bore in his interest. Dr. Gray appears to have rallied his correspondent in his reply on his notion of an omniscient and omnipotent creator, foreseeing all future events and consequences, and yet not responsible for the results of the laws which he ordains. At all events, Mr. Darwin writes him again in July of the same year. One word more about designed laws and undesigned results. I see a bird which I want for food, take my gun and kill it. I do this designedly. An innocent and good man stands under a tree and is killed by a flash of lightning. Do you believe, and I really should like to hear, that God designedly killed this man? Many or most people do believe this. I can't and don't. If you believe so, do you believe that when a swallow snaps up a gnat, that God designed that that particular swallow should snap up that particular gnat at that particular instant? I believe that the man and the gnat are in the same predicament. If the death of neither man nor gnat are designed, I see no good reason to believe that their first birth or production should be necessarily designed. We read such words with almost as much bewilderment as Mr. Darwin says he wrote them with. It is almost incredible that he should have so inextricably confused the two senses of the word design, so as to confound the question of intentional action with that of the evidences of contrivance, the question of the existence of a general plan in God's mind, in accordance with which all things come to pass, with that of the existence of marks of his hand in creation arising from intelligent adaptation of means to ends. It is equally incredible that he should present the case of a particular swallow snapping up a particular gnat at a particular time, as, to use his own word, a poser, when he could scarcely have already forgotten that all Christians, at least, 
have long since learned to understand that the care of God extends as easily to the infinitely little as to the infinitely great, that the very hairs of our head are numbered and not one sparrow falls to the ground unnoted by our Heavenly Father. Yet this seems to him so self-evidently unbelievable that he rests his case against God's direction of the line of development, for this is really what he is arguing against here, on its obvious incredibility. And he found it impossible to shake himself free from his confusion. In November of the same year, he wrote again to Dr. Gray, I grieve to say that I cannot honestly go as far as you go about design. I am conscious that I am in an utterly hopeless muddle. I cannot think that the world as we see it is the result of chance, and yet I cannot look at each separate thing as the result of design. To take a crucial example, you lead me to infer that you believe that variation has been led along certain beneficent lines. I cannot believe this, and I think you would have to believe that the tail of the fantail was led to vary in the number and direction of its feathers in order to gratify the caprice of a few men. Yet, if the fantail had been a wild bird and had used its abnormal tail for some special end, as to sail before the wind, unlike other birds, everyone would have said, what a beautiful and designed adaptation. Again, I say I am and shall remain in a hopeless muddle. The reader is apt to ask in wonder if we would not be right in thinking the fantail's tail a beautiful and designed adaptation under the circumstances supposed. Mr. Darwin actually falls here into the incredible confusion of adducing a perversion by man of the laws of nature by which an animal is unfitted for its environment as an argument against the designed usefulness of these laws in fitting animals to their environment. We might as well argue that Jael's nail was not designedly made because it was capable of being adapted to so fearful a use, that the styles of Caesar's assassins could not have been manufactured with a useful intention. Nevertheless, in June 1861, Mr. Darwin writes again to Dr. Gray, I have been led to think more on this subject of late, and grieve to say that I come to differ more from you. It is not that designed variation makes, as it seems to me, my deity of natural selection superfluous, but rather from studying lately domestic variation, and seeing what an enormous field of undesigned variability there is ready for natural selection to appropriate for any purpose useful to each creature. And about a week later, he writes to Miss Julia Wedgwood, Owing to several correspondents, I have been led lately to think, or rather, to try to think, over some of the chief points discussed by you, but the result has been with me a maze, something like thinking on the origin of evil to which you allude. The mind refuses to look at this universe being what it is without having been designed, yet where one would most expect design, viz. in the structure of a sentient being, the more I think on the subject, the less I can see proof of design. Asa Gray and some others look at each variation, which Asa Gray would compare with the raindrops which do not fall on the sea but onto the land to fertilize it, as having been providentially designed. Yet when I ask him whether he looks at each variation of the rock pigeon by which man has made by accumulation a powder or fantail pigeon as providentially designed for man's amusement, he does not know what to answer. And... If he or anyone admits that these variations are accidental, as far as purpose is concerned, of course not accidental as to their cause or origin, then I can see no reason why he should rank the accumulated variations by which the beautifully adapted woodpecker has been formed as providentially designed. 
for it would be easy to imagine the large crop of the pouter or the tail of the fantail as of some use to birds in a state of nature having peculiar habits of life. These are the considerations which perplex me about design, but whether you will care to hear them I know not. The most careless reader of this letter cannot fail renewedly to feel that, while what was on trial before Mr. Darwin's thought was not the argument from design so much as general providence, yet he falls here again into the confusion of confining his view of God's possible purpose in directing any course of events to the most proximate result, as if it were the indications of design in a given organism which he was investigating. If, however, it is the existence of a general and all-comprehending plan in God's mind, for the working out of which he directs and governs all things, that we are inquiring into, the ever-recurring argument from the pouter and fantail pigeons is irrelevant, proceeding as it does on the unexpressed premise that God's direction of their variations can be vindicated only if these variations can be shown to be beneficial to the pigeons themselves, and that in a state of nature." It is apparently an unthought thought with Mr. Darwin that the abundance of variations capable of misdirection on man's part for his pleasure or profit, while of absolutely no use to the bird in a state of nature, and liable to abuse for the bird and for man in the artificial state of domestication, may yet be a link in a great chain, which in all its links is preordained for good ends, whether morally, mentally, or even physically, whether in this world or in the next. This narrowness of view which confined his outlook to the immediate proximate result played so into the hands of his confusion of thought about the word design as from the outset fatally to handicap his progress to a reasoned conclusion. The history of his yielding up Christianity because, as he said, it is not supported by evidence, that is, because its appropriate evidence being historical is of a kind which lay outside of his knowledge or powers of estimation, was therefore paralleled by his gradual yielding up of his reasoned belief in God, because all the evidences of his activities are not capable of being looked at in the process of a dissection under the simple microscope. We have seen him at last reaching a position in which no evidence, which he could even imagine, would suffice to prove the historical truth of Christianity to him. He was fast drifting into a similar position about design. He writes to Dr. Gray, apparently in September 1861, your question, what would convince me of design, is a poser. If I saw an angel come down to teach us good, and I was convinced from others seeing him that I was not mad, I should believe in design. If I could be convinced thoroughly that life and mind was in an unknown way a function of other imponderable force, I should be convinced. If man was made of brass or iron, and no way connected with any other organism which had ever lived, I should perhaps be convinced but this is childish writing. And so indeed it is, and in a sense in which Mr. Darwin scarcely intended. But such words teach us very clearly where the real difficulty lay in his own mind. Life and mind with him were functions of matter, and he could not see that any other concourse in bringing new births into the world could be witnessed to by the nature of the results than the natural forces employed in the natural process of reproduction. He believed firmly that indiscriminate variation reacted upon through natural laws by the struggle for existence was the sufficient account for every discrimination in organic nature, was the vera causa of all forms which life took, and believing this he could see no need of God's additional activity to produce the very same effects, and could allow no evidence of its working. 
I have lately, he continues in the letter to Dr. Gray just quoted, been corresponding with Lyle, who I think adopts your idea of the stream of variation being led or designed. I have asked him, and he says he will hereafter reflect and answer me, whether he believes that the shape of my nose was designed. If he does, I have nothing more to say. If not, seeing what fanciers have done by selecting individual differences in the nasal bones of pigeons, I must think that it is illogical to suppose that the variations which natural selection preserves for the good of any being have been designed. But I know that I am in the same sort of muddle, as I have said before, as all the world seems to be in with respect to free will, yet with everything supposed to have been foreseen or preordained. And again, a few months later, still labouring under the same confusion, he writes to the same correspondent, If anything is designed, certainly man must be. One's inner consciousness, though a false guide, tells me so. Yet, I cannot admit that men's rudimentary mammae were designed. If I was to say I believe this, I should believe it in the same incredible manner as the orthodox believe the trinity in unity. You say that you are in a haze, I am in thick mud, yet I cannot keep out of the question. One wonders whether Mr. Darwin, in examining a door-knocker carved in the shape of a face, would say that he believed that the handle was designed, but could not admit that the carven face was designed. Nevertheless, an incised outline on a bit of old bone, though without obvious use, or a careless chip on the edge of a flint, though without possible use, would at once be judged by him to be designed, i.e. to be evidence, if not of obvious contrivance, yet certainly of intentional activity. Why he could not make a similar distinction in natural products remains a standing matter of surprise. The years ran on, however, and his eyes were still holden. He never advanced beyond even the illustrations he had grasped at from the first to support his position. In 1867, his variation of animals and plants under domestication appeared, and on February 8th of that year he wrote to Sir Joseph Hooker, I finish my book by a single paragraph answering, or rather throwing doubt, in so far as so little space permits, on Asa Gray's doctrine that each variation has been specially ordered or led along a beneficial line. It is foolish to touch such subjects, but there have been so many allusions to what I think about the part which God has played on the formation of organic beings, that I thought it shabby to evade the question. In writing his autobiography in 1876, he looks back upon this argument with pride, as one which has never, as far as I can see, been answered. It has a claim, therefore, to be considered something like a classic in the present discussion, and although it does not advance one step either in force or form beyond the earlier letters to Dr. Gray and Lyle, we feel constrained to transcribe it here in full. An omniscient creator, it runs, must have foreseen every consequence which results from the laws imposed by him, but can it be reasonably maintained that the creator intentionally ordered if we may use the words in the ordinary sense, that certain fragments of rock should assume certain shapes in order that the builder might erect his edifice. If the various laws which have determined the shape of each fragment were not predetermined for the builder's sake, can it be maintained with any greater probability that he specially ordained for the sake of the breeder each of the innumerable variations in our domestic plants and animals, many of these variations being of no service to man, and not beneficial, far more often injurious to the creatures themselves. Did he ordain that the crop and tail feathers of the pigeon 
should vary in order that the fancier might make his grotesque powder and fantail breeds? Did he cause the frame and mental quality of the dog, etc., to vary in order that a breed might be formed of indomitable ferocity, with jaws fitted to pin down the bull for man's brutal sport? But if we give up the principle in any one case, if we do not admit that the variations of the primordial dog were intentionally guided in order that the greyhound, for instance, that perfect image of symmetry and vigour, might be formed, no shadow of reason can be assigned for the belief that variations, alike in nature and in the results of the same general laws which have been the groundwork, through natural selection of the formation of the most perfectly adapted animals in the world, man included, were intentionally and specially guided. However much we may wish it, we can hardly follow Professor Asa Gray in his belief that variation has been led along certain beneficial lines, like a stream along definite and useful lines of irrigation. If we assume that each particular variation was from the beginning of all time preordained, then that plasticity of organization which leads to many injurious deviations of structure as well as the redundant power of reproduction, which inevitably leads to a struggle for existence, and, as a consequence, to the natural selection or survival of the fittest. On the other hand, an omnipotent and omniscient creator ordains everything and foresees everything. Thus we are brought face to face with a difficulty as insoluble as is that of free will and predestination. We read with an amazement which is akin to amusement the string of queries with which Mr. Darwin he applies his readers, as if no answer were possible to conception but the one which would drive the omnipotent and omniscient creator into impotency and ignorance, if not into non-existence. An argument which has never been answered. Why should it be answered? Is it not competent to any man to string like questions together ad infinitum, with an air of victory? Did the omnipotent and omniscient creator intentionally order that beetles should vary to so extreme an extent in form and coloration solely in order that Mr. Darwin might in his enthusiastic youth arrange them artistically in his cabinet? Did he cause the blackthorn to grow of such strong and close fibre in order that Pat might cut his shillalah from it and break his neighbour's head? Did Mr. Darwin himself write and print these words in order that his fellows might wonder why and how he was in such a muddle? But there is really no end to it, unless we are ready to confess that an object may be put to a use which was not the end of its being, that there may be intentions possible beyond the obvious proximate one, and that there is a distinction between an intentional action and a contrivance. The fallacy of Mr. Darwin's reasoning here ought not to have been hidden from him, as he tells us repeatedly that he early learned the danger of reasoning by exclusion, and yet that is exactly the process employed here. Dr. Gray did not delay long to point out some of the confusion under which his friend was laboring, and Mr. Wallace, shortly afterward, showed that there was no more difficulty in tracing the divine hand in natural production through the agency of natural selection than there is in tracing the hand of man in the formation of the races of domesticated animals through artificial selection. In neither case does there confront the outward eye other than a series of forms produced by natural law, and in the other case, as little as the other in the selecting concourse of the outside agent excluded by the unbroken traceableness of the process of descent. But Mr. Darwin was immovable. 
One of the odd circumstances of the case was that he still felt able to express pleasure in being spoken of as one whose great service to natural science lay in bringing it back to teleology. Yet this did not mean that he himself believed in teleology, and in his autobiography written in 1876 he sets aside the whole teleological argument as invalid. Nor was the setting aside of teleology merely the discrediting of one theistic proof in order to clear the way for others. The strong acid of Mr. Darwin's theory of the origin of man ate into the very heart of the other proofs as surely, though not by the same channel, as it had eaten into the fabric of the argument from design. We have already seen him speaking of the demand of the mind for a sufficient cause for the universe and its contents as possessing great weight with him, and he realized the argumentative value of the human conviction arising from the feelings of dependence and responsibility, that there is one above us on whom we depend and to whom we are responsible. But both these arguments were, in his judgment, directly affected by his view of the origin of man's mental and moral nature, as a development by means of the interworking of natural laws alone from the germ of intelligence found in brutes. We have seen how uncompromisingly he denied to Lyle the need or propriety of postulating any additional powers or any directing energy for the production of man's mental and moral nature. In the same spirit he writes complainingly to Mr. Wallace in 1869, I can see no necessity for calling in an additional and proximate cause in regard to man. This being so, he felt that he could scarcely trust man's intuitions or convictions, and thus he was able at the end of his life, 1881, to acknowledge his inward conviction that the universe is not the result of chance, and at once to add, but then with me the horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind, if there are any convictions in such a mind? It is illustrative of Mr. Darwin's strange confusion of thought on metaphysical subjects that he does not appear to perceive that his doubt, if valid at all, ought to affect not only the religious convictions of men, but all their convictions, and that it therefore undermines the very theory of man's origin, because of which it arises within him. There is not a whit more reason to believe that the processes of physical research and the logical laws by means of which inferences are drawn and inductions attained are trustworthy than that these higher convictions based on the same mental laws are trustworthy, and the origin of man's mind from a brutish source, if fatal to trust in one mental process, is fatal to trust in all the others, throwing us, as the result of such a plea, into sheer intellectual suicide. In discussing these human convictions, Mr. Darwin draws a sharp distinction between those which appeared to him to rest on feeling, and that which springs from the instinctive causal judgment and demands a sufficient cause for the universe, and which, as he judged it to be, connected with reason and not with the feelings, impressed him as having much more weight. To the argument from our Godward emotions, he allows but little value, although he looks back with regret upon the time when the grandeur of a Brazilian forest stirred his heart with feelings not only of wonder and admiration, but also of devotion, and filled and elevated his mind. He sadly confesses that the grandest scenes would no longer awaken such convictions and feelings within him, and acknowledges that he is become like a man who is colorblind and whose failure to see is of no value as evidence against the universal belief of men. 
but he makes this remark only immediately to endeavour to rob it of its force. He urges that all men of all races do not have this inward conviction of the existence of one God, and then attempts to confound the conviction which accompanies the emotions which he has described, or more properly, which quickens them, and to the reality and abidingness of which they are undying witnesses, with the emotions themselves, as if all the moving experiences of the soul in the presence of the sublimer aspects of nature were resolvable into moods of feeling. He does more, he attempts to resolve all such moods of feeling essentially into the one sense of sublimity, then assumes that this sense must itself be resolvable into still simpler constituents by which it may be proved to be a composite of bestial elements and to witness to nothing beyond our brutish origin. The state of mind, he writes, which grand scenes formerly excited in me, and which was intimately connected with a belief in God, did not essentially differ from that which is often called the sense of sublimity. And however difficult it may be to explain the genesis of this sense, it can hardly be advanced as an argument for the existence of God, any more than the powerful, though vague and similar feelings excited by music. Here is reasoning... Is it then a fair conclusion that because the sense of sublimity, no more than other similar feelings, is itself a proof of divine existence, therefore the firm conviction of the existence of God, which is intimately connected with a feeling similar to sublimity, is also without evidential value? It is as if one should reason that because the sense of resentment, which is intimately connected with the slap that I feel tingling upon my cheek, does not essentially differ from that which is often called the sense of indignation, which does not any more than other like feelings always imply the existence of human objects. Therefore the tingling slap is no evidence that a man to give it really exists. How strong a hold this odd illusion of reasoning had come upon Mr. Darwin's mind is illustrated by an almost contemporary letter to Mr. E. Gurney discussing the origin of capacity for enjoyment of music, which he closes with the following words. Your simile of architecture seemed to me particularly good, for in this case the appreciation almost must be individual, though possibly the sense of sublimity excited by a grand cathedral may have some connection with the vague feeling of terror or superstition in our savage ancestors when they entered a great cavern or gloomy forest. I wish, he adds semi-pathetically, someone could analyse the feeling of sublimity. He seems to think that to analyse this feeling would be tantamount to letting our conviction of God's existence escape in a vapour. He ascribed much more weight to the conviction of the existence of God which arises from our causal judgment, and it was chiefly under pressure of this instinct of the human mind, by which we are forced to assign a competent cause for all becoming, that he was continually being compelled to look to a first cause having an intelligent mind in some degree analogous to that of man, and so to deserve to be called a theist. But, as often, the horrid doubt always arose whether the convictions of man's mind, any more than those of a monkey's mind, from something similar to which it has been developed, are of any value, or at all trustworthy. The growth of such doubts in his mind is not traceable in full detail, but some record of it is left in the letters that have been preserved for us. For example, in 1860 he wrote to Dr. Gray, I cannot anyhow be contented to view this wonderful universe, and especially the nature of man, and to conclude that everything is the result of brute force. 
Again, I cannot think that the world as we see it is the result of chance. Again, in 1861, he wrote to Miss Wedgwood, The mind refuses to look at this universe being what it is without having been designed. At this time, he deserved to be called a theist. In 1873, he writes in reply to a query by a Dutch student, I may say that the impossibility of conceiving that this grand and wondrous universe, with our conscious selves, arose through chance, seems to me the chief argument for the existence of a god. But immediately adds, But whether this is an argument of real value, I have never been able to decide. And in 1876, after speaking of the extreme difficulty, or rather impossibility, of conceiving this immense and wonderful universe, including man, with his capacity of looking far backward and far into futurity, as the result of blind chance or necessity, he immediately adds, But there arises the doubt, can the mind of man, which has, as I fully believe, been developed from a mind as low as that possessed by the lowest animals, be trusted when it draws such grand conclusions? Nearly the same words as we have seen were repeated in 1881. And he appears to have had this branch of the subject in his mind rather than teleology, when in 1882 he shook his head vaguely when the Duke of Argyle urged that it was impossible to look upon the contrivances of nature without seeing that they were the effect and expression of mind. And looking hard at him said, well, that often comes over me with overwhelming force, but at other times it seems to go away. What then became of his instinctive causal judgment? amid these crowding doubts. It was scarcely eradicated. He could write to Mr. Graham as late as 1881, You have expressed my inward conviction that the universe is not the result of chance. But inward conviction with Mr. Darwin did not mean reasoned opinion, which is to be held and defended, but natural and instinctive feeling, which is to be corrected. And he certainly allowed his causal judgment gradually to fall more and more into abeyance. In his letter to the Dutch student in 1873, he knew how to add to his avowal that he felt the impossibility of conceiving of this grand universe as causeless. The further avowal, I am aware that if we admit a first cause, the mind still craves to know whence it came and how it arose, and thus to do what he could to throw doubt on the theistic inference. And he also knew how to speak as if the agnostic inference were reasonable and philosophical, everywhere maintaining his right to assume living forms to begin with, as a philosopher assumes gravitation, by which, as he is careful to explain, he does not mean that these forms, or this form, have been created in the usual sense of that word, but only that we know nothing as yet of how life originates. And writing as late as 1878, as to the eternity of matter, I have never troubled myself about such insoluble questions. Nevertheless, it is perfectly certain that neither Mr. Darwin nor anyone else can reject both creation and non-creation, both a first cause and the eternity of matter. As Professor Flint truly points out, we may believe in a self-existent God or in a self-existent world. We cannot believe in an infinite regress of causes. When Mr. Darwin threw doubt on the philosophical consistency of the assumption of a first cause, he was bound to investigate the hypothesis of the eternity of matter, and until this latter task was completed, he was bound to keep silence on a subject on which he had so little right to speak. Where his predilection would carry him is plain from the pleasure with which he read of Dr. Bastian's Archibiosis, 
1872, wishing that he could live to see it proved to be true. We are regretfully forced to recognize in this whole course of argument a desire to eliminate the proofs of God's activity in the world. He did not like to retain God in his knowledge. Further evidence of this trend may be observed in the tone of the addition to the autobiographical notes which he made, with a special reference to his religious beliefs, in 1876, and in which he, somewhat strangely, included a full anti-theistic argument, developed in so orderly a manner that it may stand for us as a complete exhibit of his attitude toward the problem of the divine existence. In this remarkable document, he first discusses the argument from design, concluding that the old argument from design in nature given by Paley, which formerly seemed to me so conclusive, fails now that the law of natural selection has been discovered. He adds that there seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings and in the action of natural selection than in the course which the wind blows, and refers the readers to the argument given at the end of variation of animals and plants under domestication, as one which has never been answered. Having set this more detailed teleology aside, he next examines the broader form of the argument from design, which rests on the general beneficent arrangement of the world, and concludes that the great fact of suffering is opposed to the theistic inference, while the prevailing happiness, in conjunction with the presence of much suffering, agrees well with the view that all organic beings have been developed through variation and natural selection. Next, he discusses the the most usual argument of the present day for the existence of an intelligent God, that drawn from the deep inward conviction and feelings which are experienced by most persons. He speaks sadly of his own former firm conviction of the existence of God, and describes how feelings of devotion welled up within him in the presence of grand scenery, but he sets the argument summarily aside as invalid. Finally, he adduces the demands of the causal judgment in a passage which has already been quoted, but discards it too with an expression of doubt as to the trustworthiness of such grand conclusions when drawn by a brute-bred mind like man's. His conclusion is formulated helplessness. The mystery of the beginning of all things is insoluble by us, and I for one must be content to remain an agnostic. It was out of such a reasoned position that he wrote in 1879, In my most extreme fluctuations, I have never been an atheist in the sense of denying the existence of God. I think that generally, and more and more as I grow older, but not always, that an agnostic would be the more correct description of my state of mind. Nor can we help carrying over the light thus gained to aid us in explaining the words written to Jena the same year. Mr. Darwin considers that the theory of evolution is quite compatible with the belief in God, but that you must remember that different persons have different definitions of what they mean by God. It would be an interesting question what conception Mr. Darwin, who began with a deistic conception, had come to when he reached the agnostic stage and spoke familiarly of what is called a personal God. By such stages as these did this great man drift from his early trust into an inextinguishable doubt whether such a mind as man's can be trusted in its grand conclusions, and by such reasoning as this did he support his suicidal results.
No more painful spectacle can be found in all biographical literature, no more startling discovery of the process by which even great and good men can come gradually to a state of mind in which, despite their more noble instincts, they can but judge all nature from her feet of clay, without the will to lift their eyes to see her godlike head crowned with spiritual fire and touching other worlds. The process that we have been observing, as has been truly said, is not that of an ejectment of reverence and faith from the system, as, say, in the case of Mr. Frode, or of an insisting of them, as, say, with Mr. J.S. Mill, but simply of an atrophy of them, as they dissolve painlessly away. In Mr. Darwin's case, this atrophy was accompanied by a similar deadening of his higher emotional nature, by which he lost his power of enjoying poetry, music, and to a large extent, scenery, and stood like some great tree of the forest with broad-reaching boughs, beneath which men may rest and refresh themselves, but with decay already marking it as its own, as evidenced by the deadness of its upper branches. He was a man dead at the top. It is more difficult to trace the course of his personal religious life during this long-continued atrophying of his religious conceptions. He was not permitted to enter upon this development without a word of faithful admonition. When The Origin of Species was published in 1859, his old friend and preceptor, Professor A. Sedgwick, appears to have foreseen the possible driftage of his thought and wrote him the following touching words. I have been lecturing three days a week. Formerly I gave six a week without much fatigue, but I find by the loss of activity and memory and of all productive powers that my bodily frame is sinking slowly toward the earth. But I have visions of the future. They are as much a part of myself as my stomach and my heart, and these visions are to have their antitype in solid fruition of what is best and greatest. But on one condition only, that I humbly accept God's revelation of himself, both in his works and in his word, and do my best to act in conformity with that knowledge which he only can give me, and he only can sustain me in doing. If you and I do all this, we shall meet in heaven." The appeal had come too late to aid his old pupil to conserve his Christian faith. It was already long since he had believed that God had ever spoken in word, and he was fast drifting to a position from which he could with difficulty believe that he had spoken in his works. It is not a pleasant letter that he wrote to Mrs. Boole in 1866 in reply to some very respectfully framed inquiries as to the relation of his theory to the possibility of belief in inspiration and a personal and good God who exercises moral influence on man to which he is free to yield. The way in which he avoids replying to these questions almost seems to be irritable and is possibly an index to his feelings toward the matters involved. Nevertheless, his sympathy with suffering and his willingness to lend his help toward the elevation of his fellow men remained. He even aided the work of Christian missions by contributions in money, although he no longer shared the hopes by which those were nerved who carried the civilizing message to their degraded fellow beings. Why, indeed, he should have trusted the noble impulses of his conscience and been willing to act upon them when he judged that the brutish origin of man's whole mental nature vitiated all its grand conclusions, 
it might puzzle a better metaphysician than he laid claim to be satisfactorily to explain but his higher life seems to have taken this direction and it is characteristic of him to close the letter to the dutch student written in eighteen seventy three with such words as these the safest conclusion seems to me that the whole subject is beyond the scope of man's intellect but man can do his duty but when there is no one to show us any truth who is there to show us duty if our conscience is but the chance growth of the brute mind hemmed in by its environment and squeezed into a new form by the pressure of a fierce and unmoral struggle for existence what moral imperative has it such as deserves the high name of duty certainly the argument is as valid here as there but by the power of so divine an inconsistency mr darwin was enabled as citizen friend husband and father to do his duty he had no sharp sense of sin but so far as duty lay before him he retained a tender conscience and thus as he approached the end of his long and laborious life he felt able to say i feel no remorse from having committed any great sin but have often and often regretted that i have not done more direct good to my fellow-creatures and again as the end came on we learn that he seemed to recognize the approach of death and said i am not the least afraid to die and thus he went out into the dark without god in all his thoughts with no hope for immortality and with no keenness of regret for all the high and noble aspirations and all the elevated imaginings which he had lost out of life that we may appreciate how sad a sight we have before us let us look back from the end to the beginning we stand at the deathbed of a man whom in common with all the world we most deeply honour he has made himself a name which will live through many generations and withal has made himself beloved by all who came into close contact with him true tender-hearted and sympathetic he has in the retirement of invalidism lived a life which has moved the world but is his death just the death we should expect from one who had once given himself to be an ambassador of the lord when we turn from what he has done to what he has become can we say that in the very quintessence of living he has fulfilled the promise of that long ago ingenious youth who suffered something like remorse when he beat a puppy and as he ran to school prayed earnestly to god to help him let us look upon him in the light of a contrast there was another charles living in the world with him but a few years his senior whose childhood too was blessed with a vivid sense of the nearness of heaven he too has left us some equally simple-hearted and touching autobiographical notes and from them we learn that his too was a praying childhood as far back as i can remember he writes i had the habit of thanking god for everything that i received or asking him for everything i wanted if i lost a book or any of my playthings i prayed that i might find it i prayed walking along the streets in school and out of school whether playing or studying i did not do this in obedience to any prescribed rule it seemed natural i thought of god as an everywhere present being full of kindness and love who would not be offended if children talked to him i knew he cared for sparrows thus charles hodge and charles darwin began their lives on a somewhat similar plane and both write in their old age of their childhood's prayers with something like a smile but how different the quality of these smiles charles darwin's smile is almost a sneer 
When in doubt, he writes, I prayed earnestly to God to help me, and I well remember that I attributed my success to the prayers and not to my quick running, and marveled how generally I was aided. Charles Hodges' smile is the pleasant smile of one who looks back on small beginnings from a well-won height. There was little more in my prayers and praises, he writes, than in the worship rendered by the fowls of the air. This mild form of natural religion did not amount to much. His praying childhood was Charles Darwin's highest religious attainment. His praying childhood was to Charles Hodge, but the inconsiderable seed out of which were marvellously to unfold all the graces of a truly devout life. Starting from a common centre, these two great men, with much of natural endowment in common, trod opposite paths, and when the shades of death gathered around them, one could but face the depths of darkness in his greatness of soul without fear, and yield like a man to the inevitable lot of all. The other, bathed in a light not of the earth, rose in spirit upon his dead self to higher things, repeating to his loved ones about him the comforting words of a sublime hope. Why should you grieve? To be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. To be with the Lord is to see the Lord. To see the Lord is to be like him. The one conceived that he had reached the end of life, and looked back upon the little space that had been allotted to him without remorse, indeed, but not without a sense of its incompleteness. The other contemplated all that he had been enabled to do through the many years of rich fruitage which had fallen to him, as but childhood's preparation for the true life which in death was but dawning upon him. Charles Darwin's Religious Life, A Sketch in Spiritual Biography, Part 2, by B.B. Warfield.